welcome to Truth in Learning. I'm Matt Richter, and I'm here with my hero, Will Tallheimer. Hi, Will. I thought we decided there'd be no aceclius praise anymore. But you're the guy I follow off a cliff. Oh. You're, the, you're the person I would zoom to the moon with. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's end of the year. I'm I love punchy. you too, Matt. I love you too. I don't think you really do. I do, man. Yeah? Yeah. You're, okay. giving me, you're giving me hope for the future. That's good. That's good. It's because I'm so much younger than you, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today we have, um, we're, we're going to cut our banter down a little bit because we have a, a slightly longer episode than normal. Uh, we had the opportunity to talk with our good friend, Clark Quinn. And we spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about his book, Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, Debunking Learning Myths and Superstitions. So we took the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with Clark. And therefore, we're only going to do one additional segment today. And Will, what's, what's that first segment going to be? Uh, learning awards or awards in the learning industry. Have you won any? Have you ever won any? Um, don't make me cry. Don't make me cry. Um, I have actually... Um, I've been rejected for a few awards, uh, but one of my, my book won a, uh, an award from ISPI, International Society of Performance Improvement. So. Okay, very good, very good. I've never won any awards either. That's not true. I got an award from the North American Simulation uh, and Gaming Association uh, as an up-and-comer. When so. was this? in 1998. Okay, well, let's move in. So I asked you if you, you let, let's move into the segment. I asked you if you won an award and I, I haven't. Um, so I just am oh, worried well, that if I, we're going to talk okay. about this, are people going to uh, say they're just two bitter old guys? No. Well, I, I, okay. So I just won another award I forgot about and that's the uh, guild master award. So I oh, know, okay. Okay. shout out to the guild. Thank you. So you, you're not bitter then. No, 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 not really. Okay, good. Actually, and as we go through this segment, you might see why. Okay, all right. So, so let's uh, let's go into our segment. So it's interesting, you know, we, um, we are now interacting with people on LinkedIn. If you go to the hashtag truth and learning, you'll see a lot of our uh, posts. And uh, so I asked a question last week about industry awards. What do you think of them? And we got all kinds of responses. It was really quite amazing. And not only did we get responses in LinkedIn, but we also got people calling me up and talking to me offline because they wanted to tell me stuff that maybe they couldn't say publicly. So really fascinating. But just to lay the landscape here, there's a lot of awards out there in our industry. And I don't wanna focus on any one award. It's not about the individual awards so much. They're, in some ways, they're very similar. Here's what happens. They post that they're gonna do an award, whether it's the best of, the best of 30, uh, industry best, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these different awards. And then, People apply, oftentimes they have to pay an application fee. It's not too much, it's like $200 or something like that. 
some of the awards are free, but some some money, and then you fill out this application, and then they have judges that are selected to judge your application, and then winners are sorted sometimes, and then eventually selected, and then there is some kind of award announcement. Sometimes there's an uh, award function or conference or whatever, and so that's what we're talking about. That's kind of the industry awards. Okay, so that's the awards, and what's the issue with them? Well, the issue is, well, the issue is, can they be trusted? Are they beneficial? Are they useful to the individuals and organizations that take part? Are they useful for the industry? Um, are they accurate? Are they fair? Are they valid, et cetera? Those kind of questions. That's a lot of questions. Well, what's wrong with questions? Questions are great for learning. Well, let, let, let's take one at a time. First of all, are, are they worth it? Are they worth it? Well, you know, some people in writing to us said, you know, these awards are complete bullshit. And we, you know, they're, they're meaningless. And they listed all these problems. They talked about, I was a judge and I had to, you know, I had to look at nine of these things and there were so many and there was not enough information in them. And some of the information was wrong. One person, I just talked with him today. He, he said, and this is amazing. He said, well, I was at an award. I, I, I was a judge for one of these awards. And, um, you know, there's a group of us, we got together and I basically said, you know, I don't see any of these uh, applications as being worthy. They're not worthy. And he was asked to, well, work with the process. And he said, well, I basically am telling you I did that. And I don't think any of them are worthy. And then he was asked, well, try to be appreciative. <laughs> and so, you know, he basically didn't think they were any good, but the emphasis or the push that he got was we have to choose some of these so let's go well that sounds pretty pretty specious at best i i think the 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 problem for me is there are so many people who don't go after the awards or don't get nominated by the awards or don't have someone who can run the process through for them and so there's a, a tremendous amount of really good practitioners who don't get awards or who are not considered for the awards. And then a bunch of people who are probably a little more marketing savvy than you and me, who get the awards and collect them and post them all over their websites and use them as marketing devices. And Well, uh, that's how they're used. And that, that's sort of a problem, right? If, if the awards aren't trustworthy, you know, if the good people are not selected and the bad people are maybe selected, then it sends the wrong signal to buyers and people in the industry, et cetera. I'll give you an example. And I've been looking around all these different award sites over the past week or so. So uh, one of them had the best, uh, uh, I think it was the best 20, maybe 30, I forget what it was. But, um, and I wouldn't tell you if I knew because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> so <laughs> they, had, they had the best of, right? And they had a category on learning evaluation. I said, oh, that's interesting. I'm, I do learning evaluation. Let's see who they thought were the best of in 2019. I looked through the Wait, awards. Wait, let me guess. Kirkpatrick's on that list. I'll tell you who's not on the list. Kirkpatrick's you. are not on the list. What? Jack, Jack and Patty Phillips are not on the list. You're not Brinker on the list. Hoffer's, Brinkerhoff is not on the list. And Will Tallheimer is not on the list. <laughs> Wait, then who's on the list? Isn't that it? Know. Is that yeah, it? <laughs> no, there's a whole bunch of people. There's a top 27 or whatever they have. So, you know, it's wow. clearly 
So one of the things you have to understand is uh, people don't get awards unless they apply for an award. They put in the time to fill out the award process. They write and a, pay for it, right? And they pay for it, right? So uh, this, of course, skews the results toward big companies that have somebody that they can, you know, has a little extra time in the schedule that they can do this kind of thing. Uh, that has access to a graphic design shop, perhaps, to make a beautiful. Uh, that can create a video or whatever. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of a problem there. So what, what, one of the things, uh, you, you posted on LinkedIn to get people's input, and uh, a lot of people liked awards and, and talked about, <laughs> the. coincidentally, I think, the awards they liked happened to always be the ones they had won. But that was that was just an observation. Pure coincidence. Um, yeah, pure, pure coincidence. But um, they all talked about the proposal process for the award adding rigor either post hoc to their designs or the notion that they were going to apply for the award helped create rigor around their designs which i found troubling uh, just in definition i started thinking about how to conceptualize what's happening here and you can sort of think of this as a funnel right mm -hmm. there's a, there's a there's an awards funnel and, and so in the beginning, uh, you have to get people to apply, right? And ideally, you know, if you were gonna give an award and truly pick out the best person, you wouldn't wanna make sure that everyone was given a fair chance to win, right? So, you know, if there's a barrier to entry, like it takes a lot of time or uh, it costs money, or we're only taking, we're only giving an awards to people that apply or to people that are doing work with us in our consulting group, things like that, that would create a problem. So that's the first part of the funnel is you got to find the people. And then you've got to have some criteria for success. What's uh, most successful uh, application? What do they have to show? What don't they have to show? And there's some problems there. I was looking on one of the application and judging requirements and um, here's some of the things that were criteria for success. The number of hours of training delivered organization-wide, the number of trainers you have, your average class size, the average training hours per person, learner survey ratings. Now they had a whole bunch of other things as well, but these sort of inconsequential things like you know how many trainers you have or how many hours of training. It doesn't matter whether the training was good or terrible. It's just the hours of training um, was like 20% or 20 to 25% of the total. So one of the problems I see is that the criteria are not very good. So that's the, so we're still at the top of the funnel. Um, we've got, you know, this, the application information that people actually provide has to be, and which should be verifiable. Now, there's no way that anybody verifies what's on these applications. And then the app application information um, must be substantial enough so things can be fairly judged. I've heard of contests where they're judging e-learning products, right? And then you're allowed, you're not allowed to send your actual product. You can't have people look at that, but you can create like a 15 minute video that people will look at, or you can grab some screenshots that people will look at. So is that substantial enough to make a good estimate? Probably not. And then your judges, they have to be impartial and you know, independent of the sponsoring organization. You have to have time to devote to each application they review. 
um, they should probably have a rubric for each criteria, not just say, oh, you know, uh, what do you look, look for good stuff, pick out the good stuff. Um, you know, they have to have a number of judges, not just one per application. I'll give you a sense of this. I went to one of these awards and they gave out 512 awards for 2019, 196 gold awards, 140 silver awards, and 176 bronze awards. That's 512 awards. My God, if I paid for that, I'd be so pissed getting a bronze. <laughs> well, and they also said, here's another thing, that they had like 102 judges. And they had, they said that the, the awards represented only 20% of all the people that put in applications. Now, if you do the math, they got 2,560 applications. If you divide that by the number of judges, that's 25, judge, 25 applications per judge. So there's no way that this is actually happening in a reasonable, reasonable way. Um, you know, Let alone just, how, how, how stringent is the award process if if uh, 25% win. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. How can you signal your worth if, and this is just one of the, one of the organizations that gives out awards. It's really, and you know, these, these award things, are re there's really a business model behind it, right? So you get money by, for each application, and that's a little bit. But then what you do is you have like a conference or a gala, or you have, you know, you, you print out a book and with all these awards in it, and then the people that won the award, you know, they get to, they go to the gala. They pay a, you know a thousand dollars to go to the gala. You make a lot of money. It reminded me of I don't know, Matt. Have you ever like submitted your poetry for one of these best poets in America contests or whatever? Well, and then, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then they accept. It was the first time I'd ever been published. Yeah, and they accept you. And then your prize for this is you get to buy as many copies of this book as you want to hand out to your families and friends. I, I, oh. If any of you want to buy that book of poetry that I'm in, I have 42 more books left for sale. Wow. So That's amazing. My poem, Hank, about my Cocker Spaniels in it. Really? Yeah. Are you, are, uh, so I'm, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> not even Can joking. You put your poem in the episode notes? No way. No, I want people to respect me. Not even close. So, so, you know, all those criteria that I talked about, and I'm probably missing some, it suggests that this is just an untenable process. There's no way that we can judge people fairly. And well, again, I, I think that the, there are two things that bother me. One is we went through this process uh, through uh, uh, and my client won the Burson Leadership Award. Now, my client had nothing to do with filling out the proposal other than signing it. Uh, we paid for it. I filled out all the, the pages on the application, and we won. Uh, the cost of the application, I can't remember, I, I can't remember how much it was, but it was, it was not insubstantial, right? And the client wins, and... This was my engagement. I mean, I, I did all the work for it, but the client is put on the panel. So we went down on our own dime, the client, me, everyone associated with the project. We go down, we had to pay for the dinner. We had to pay for the, uh, the event itself to attend. I wasn't even allowed on the panel because I was the consultant. 
and wow. uh, and but did, you, but did you get to did you get to put on your website that you were a winner of this award? What I do is I put my client won this award. Okay, which is good. But but I, I did a little checking. All f- six or seven people who took the time to pay for this and sign up for it won. I mean, I think everyone won if they paid and did filled out the application. It's a participant. So. It's a participation trophy. As yes, like. it's an achievement of completion. <laughs> so, um, and, and frankly, I mean, I'm happy to be able to say we got it. You know, there's a certain pleasure in being able to say award-winning program. So I, I get the extrinsic factors associated with winning it, but but the idea that that there were so many limitations because. They wanted companies to claim the win, not consultants. They wanted it to be an internal program, not a consultant-driven program. And so there, there was that's a smokescreen. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You you paid the entrance fee. Yeah, of course. My client, I had the the client ultimately didn't care. You know, they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Sure, we'll we'll send down this guy. You know. But but there was no there was no real uh, engagement because in the end they didn't care because it had nothing to do with their business, you know. Um, but so that's one thing. But then the other thing that bothers me, I mentioned, I alluded to in the beginning of the segment, is how do you know that the people going for this are truly the best? Well, you know that they're not the best, right? Because the best are probably not going through the rigmarole. Well, they could or they couldn't be, but you're, they're just, just not a, it's not a valid signal. It's not a right. reliable signal right. that you're getting. Right. So, all right. Can I make oh, an announcement? A, no, no. Wait, wait. There's one aspect of this I think I want to add here. Okay. You know, this process theoretically could be a good one. If you had an application process that was really rigorous, that focused on meaningful uh, criteria, it could be an educational opportunity for those who are filling it out, right? And that could be a real benefit to the people. And that's what some people argued. You know, this was a good process for us. We got thinking about stuff. Now, my worry is they're thinking about the wrong things, right? Mm-hmm. They're thinking about, well, the number of trainers they have, or right. the number of hours right. delivered. That's not the right thing to think about. But you could design it theoretically in such a way that it is an educational opportunity. Right. Now, how to get uh, the winners to come out at the end of this process. I'm not so sure that's going to be an easy uh, solution. Right, right. No, that makes sense. So before we move into our conversation with Clark, who is Clark Quinn? Clark Quinn is one of the research translators uh, in our field. And he's been in the field many years. He's focused on e-learning, mobile learning. Uh, He's written a book calling for a revolution in the L&D industry. And his most recent book, uh, we're going to talk with him about. Great. All right. So without further ado, we'll cut into the Clark, uh, Clark uh, I don't want to say interview. It's truly a conversation with Clark. Yeah, so here you go. Here you go. Will, welcome back. Hey, Matt. 
Delighted to be back. I know. It, it's funny how that 30-second uh, theme music break just gives us like an eternity of time to run to the bathroom and do all sorts of other things in between segments, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, Clark, you're going to find that Will doesn't understand my jokes. <laughs> well, well <So. laughs> we have a definitional problem of what a joke is. <laughs> anyway. As you may have noticed, we are already joined by the eminent Clark Quinn, uh, who is our guest today for our third segment. And we are very excited to talk with Clark about learning myths, misconceptions, and so much more. So welcome to Truth and Learning, Clark. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, I'll let the audience know when I, they invited me. I said, what took you so long? <laughs> Well, so, and and uh, it's all good. Hey, um, I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, uh, you know, as I share with you, we needed to practice before we felt we were capable enough of being able to have you on the show. So, yeah, yeah, if we had if we had background music, you know, we went out. Ta-da. That's right. That's right. We learned <laughs> this is when we should bow and so <laughs> forth. But you know, Will, there's one. The thing amazing that- Quinn. No, Clark Mighty. does. Clark does ruin one aspect of the show for us. Oh, what's that? Well, you and I have faces for radio, but Clark, Clark has a face for TV. <laughs> <laughs> I have a voice for TV and a face for radio. <laughs> Welcome to the team. <laughs> so, uh, he's, so, got, he's got more hair than we do, though, man. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So. Will, I know you had a question for Clark, uh, a burning question you wanted to ask him. Well, okay. So, Clark, you have written a book on uh, debunking some of the myths and misconceptions in the learning space. And uh, let's just start out with a general question. Why, Why should we care about these myths and misconceptions? Um, the short answer is because they can do harm. Um, the, one of the things they can do is they can cause us to waste money in cycles on stuff that isn't worth investment. But it can actually cause people to limit themselves and even uh, learn inappropriately. So it's, it's not just harmless. It's not just, oh, you know, what's it matter? Resources are limited, but the thought that you know, one of them, several of them involve stereotypes, uh, discrimination in a sense. You know, the millennials and, th- and generations are really a form of mild form of age discrimination and learning styles. People can pr- limit themselves into what they view themselves, how they view themselves as a learner. And both of those have consequences for the individual and for the organization again, investing money in doing these things uh, is money that could be spent doing stuff that actually matters, that actually works. And um, I think it's time we uh, quit chasing um, unicorns and start putting in the hard work to invest. So, so let's think about this. If the people that hire us knew that we were wasting time and doing ineffective things, they might not like that so much. Um, they should 
be concerned with spending money appropriately. Now, there are people who are selling things to them who are upset. I actually did a myth session when we launched the book at International Conference, and one of the anonymous comments afterwards was from a vendor, and it really was to ADD saying, well, if you're gonna to continue to blow up what I'm selling, I can't continue to, to exhibit in your hall, right? It was a threat. And, you know, don't know who it was. Again, it was anonymous, but um, it is threatening. The question is who should be properly threatened and who should be eagerly embracing the opportunity to uh, apply resources to what works. Wow. So this, there was a vendor, you, you gave a talk and there was a vendor in the audience and this vendor said, hey, I don't like this guy. He's like, he's dissing my product, my service. And, you know, if he keeps speaking at these conferences, I'm not going to exhibit. So that, and that's just one vendor. So there could be like this pressure in the industry that is almost encouraging some of these mythologies. Wow. And as you know, um, as you both know, it's once you've invested in something, it's hard to go away from it. So if you bought into this and spent money on one of these personality assessments or something and have been using it, it's really hard to realize and admit, oh, we've been wasting money. Um, so there's a, a built-in momentum that's hard to change. And yet, ultimately, you would hope people would start realizing why am I wasting money on something that science says doesn't work? Uh, I would like to believe that. That's the world I want to live in. <laughs> but Clark, do you ever, I mean, I run into all the time that people say, who cares about science? And it works because I feel it works and I see it working. And so there's this, this dissonance between their experience personally and the, the data in front of them. How do you reconcile that? Um, well, I tried to do it in, in the myths book, um, Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, um, where I tried to show why it's appealing, but then also show why it's wrong and give you an alternative of something to do instead. But it, it's true. I have encountered people in other topics, non-learning-based, um, you know, where they just go, well, that's not my opinion. And it's not about opinion, it's about facts. And yet, in some sense, it seems like societally, perhaps we've moved slightly towards being willing to accept opinion as a suitable alternative to science. And that, to me, is a slightly sad state of affairs. You, yeah. I'm, you know, but I think there just needs to be a concerted push to go back to science. It's like, the video technology we're using to record this podcast came from science, folks. Almost everything you do, that phone in your pocket is due to science. Why are you suddenly dissing it when it's inconvenient for you? Be, you know, um, step up and admit that you want to do it right or admit that you're just per perfectly willing to throw money away to make yourself feel better and not do best for the organization. It's, hey, it's, Matt, hey, Matt, yeah, yeah. This is this is when we uh, we morph the whole podcast into a political podcast because I think you know. We <laughs> <go there. laughs> I know. I was just thinking that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I today is impeachment day. <laughs> oh, yes. As we record this, it's impeachment day, and 
uh, I've had the the hearings going on behind me, and and it, it, it's as if we're watching or, or watching literally two different TV shows. I mean, you have the Democrats standing up and and espousing one thing, the Republicans literally saying the opposite. I mean, it couldn't be farther from uh, uh, any the common component in what they're they're saying about each other and to each other. It's it's terrifying. But and, and but vaccines so were, but I was thinking about it from a in terms of vaccines and vaccinations, right? The anti-vax movement, to me, mm-hmm. is is such a a clear example outside of learning and development uh, of this phenomenon. And we see it within learning, and that's the problem. It's you know, and that's why I was mentioning that it seems society has been shifted to more acceptance of non-science, and I think you know. I'm hoping that instead we're trying to generate um, greater understanding and awareness. And um, I, I hope that uh, the signs I'm seeing are not just self-delusion, <laughs> but yeah. that there actually is a growing interest in it, at least within the industry. You know, um, you know, in politics, a lot of people are just tuning out. They just hate this dysfunction in the government. They just you know, and, and, you know, lots of people who are educated, who used to care about this stuff, they, they just, they can't take it anymore. Well, I, I, I'm, I also find that sometimes the reason people like things, you can't find an alternative. So, so for example, uh, with DISC and other disposition or personality categorizing tools, the, the obvious alternative is some version of the big five. But the big five isn't the positive, everyone's okay and everyone's strong and has their strengths type of model. The big five has some negative aspects to it. And what people like about DISC and these other uh, inventories is they're overwhelmingly positive and everyone comes out on top. And, and, and so the, what they like is not necessarily replicatable. And but- it's, it's hard to dismiss that. I, I, I'm not sure I fully agree. I just recently read an article that argued about why um, the you know, why wouldn't everybody uh, evolution have selected us towards the optimal ocean profile, the big five mm-hmm. profile, yeah. right? And they said no, that actually the variety is a necessity for a successful society and stuff. So you may need people who are neurotic. Um, Yay! <laughs> yeah, and um, but. So the, the way you were supposed to use, particularly the Myers-Briggs, if you look at how they're instructed to use it, and I talked about, they did this in something I was involved in, and I talked to the instructor afterwards, go, you know, and he made a good point that, look, realize people are different and value the differences, which is part of a good learning organization, but don't characterize people into that. It's just an instrument to show diversity, although the problem with it is, Little, I mean, Myers Briggs in particular, it's not psychometrically valid and it's fu- theoretically flawed because um, young stuff, uh, he made up whole cloth. <laughs> and, uh, I, think, I think he had a dream. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't he was, know if he's one is, of the universe. You know, right. but um, just making people feel good is, you know, Jeffrey Pfeffer, a business professor at Stanford, wrote Leadership BS. And there's a lot of BS out there that makes people feel good, but isn't really useful. And I understand the desire, but I think you can use a tool like Ocean, which, you know, it's the- a theoretical. It's purely come from factor analysis, but it's been robustly 
separated into different dimensions that are not you know, replicating this, measuring the same thing and are repeatable over time and they meet the psychometric test. But in a sense, it's atheoretical and yet it's useful. The point being how you use it. And I think if you tried to use it to say, recognize who you are, but uh, another thing I read recently said, there's a problem with the strengths. If you ignore your weaknesses, they can continue to be vulnerabilities. And so the whole strengths thing by itself may be harmful as well. Oh, yeah. I've always been suspicious. I, well, <laughs> You're I, always I, suspicious, I, period. Well, I am. <laughs> I am. But, I mean, how can it be? You know, if you think about yourself, you know, like when we were in our 20s, there were some things we just weren't good at. And now we're good at it because we worked at them, right? And now it's, you know, I used to not be able to speak in front of people. And now I get invited to do keynotes and things. So, like, that's a big, I had to work at it. But that was a weakness. And now it's, you know, not a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. No. Hey, can we uh, move on to some of the chapters uh, in your book, uh, Clark? I would love to call out some of the them by category. So like we'll start with some of the myths and move into the misconceptions and then the superstitions. But I'd love to hear you comment on them and uh, have Will and I discuss our thoughts on them as well and, and, uh, and, and so forth. Is that okay? Hey, Matt? Yeah. Uh, are we allowed to fight back? Uh, are we just... Only on seventy twenty ten will. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Bring right. it on. <laughs> All right, but uh, let let's start with some of the myths. And I, I my favorite because uh, working a lot in the the Bay Area, uh, I run into the multi generation effect all the time. So can we start with the generations effect? And and Clark, can you give like a thirty second overview of what each of these are before we start discussing them? Right. The generational myth, which also is the millennials thing, argues that where you, you know, the time period in which you grew up had fundamental features that changed, you know, the, the nurture part of the culture changed the, a whole group of, in that time period differently than a different group. And uh, so that's the, the myth. And the question is, is there data? And, um, when you look at the data, you find out that in fact, and it's appealing, you know, you look at the younger folks and you go, you know, if you're an older person, uh, I think we three roughly qualify. <laughs> look at the young people. Oh, these kids don't have any respect for anything today. <laughs> get off problem my is, lawn. <laughs> yeah, get off my lawn. You guys the have a lawn? The problem is they've been saying that since ancient Greece, you know, for, since we first had writing. And it's just older versus younger. It's not about the generation people grew up, grew up in. And they, I remember uh, was my wife talked about, you know, hearing somebody talk and going, oh, you know, this generation had latchkey kids. Well, every generation's had latchkey kids. It's not unique. And I don't think they have anything more in common. And the boundaries are arbitrary and they shift in different people's definitions. It just ends up being uh, a stereotype a way to stereotype people that isn't actually have any data behind it. They looked at what people in different in the workplace valued and they looked at it across ages and they didn't find any significant difference between them, except based on things that are by their age. If you're younger, you don't have experience, so you value certifications more. If you're older, you don't care about certifications much, but that's not generations. That's not, it's just basically as you get older, you have less need 
for. There, so, there's uh, some wonderful researchers in human development that look at uh, stages across the life cycle. And I find that to be a much more effective model, a uh, much more effective lens when we're looking at people. We do uh, have just, cognitive changes as we age. Um, we're less detail-oriented, but ha able to have a bigger, bigger picture. So, Right, right. And, and so if you think about things in terms of uh, the human life cycle, this becomes much more useful. Uh, and, and then you have to continually look at individuals as well within that paradigm. An individual experience, exactly. So this whole digital native thing, which is related, says, oh, everybody who grew up with technology is really good at it. No, they're comfortable with it, perhaps. But the evidence is that they do write no better searches and no better evaluate the hits they get on their searches than does it people at other ages. Um, evaluate people as an individual. Not, don't try and stereotype them. Don't discriminate on them based upon when they were born. <laughs> so, so uh, I want to ask you about that, but I, I will tell you this. Uh, my daughter is uh, 16, almost 17. Uh, and like last year, the year before, she did turn to me and say, Dad, you just don't understand my generation. <laughs> so anyway, but so let's be specific here. So are you saying that if I'm developing a training, that I should not cater at all to millennials versus you know, older people versus X, Y, Z? I am indeed saying that. The, some of the claims are the, oh, the younger people play games and so you should do more game-like learning. Gamification, no. Serious games, yes. But that's better for everybody. It's just better contextualized performance. Um, the advice I gave in the book is just do good learning design. It works better for everybody, whatever age you are. Don't try and design differently for younger people and older people unless you can find some reliable discriminator. So um, I remember a colleague used to did a lot of work uh, in training young Air Force recruits to do technical troubleshooting. But they do have some characteristics <laughs> that, you know, they have a lot of enthusiasm and energy and not necessarily um, arguably more, but that's based upon their age. Just what you were saying, Matt, about the um, categories of the cognitive development as opposed to a generation. What about so uh, your audience? Duh. <laughs> what about multitasking? Um, it, our architecture is parallel subconsciously, but consciously it's serial. We have to deal with one thing after another. Um, if what has to happen, you use a computational metaphor, you're doing something, you have to save the state, store it, pull up another state, regenerate it, process on it, then save it and go back to the old state and do this. If you're consciously multitasking, you're adding all this extra overhead. And the evidence is, the evidence is that it's not as effective as not multitasking. It takes longer, it's less, the outcome is less effective. So when, so when someone says, I'm a good multitasker? They may be good, relatively speaking, but multitasking isn't as effective as single tasking. Okay, we're screwed, Will. <laughs> I was, hey, saying, I was looking online for that, that <clears throat> quote that Clark came up with. <laughs> Will, uh, I, you've written a lot on Dale's Cone. 
what is Dale's Cone? And this is also one of the, the, the chapters Clark writes about in his Miss section. And I drew on Will's stuff, so. Well, Dale's Cone, uh, there was a guy named Edgar Dale, and he was writing back in, the, I think it was the 1940s, and he came up with this uh, cone of experience, he called it. And uh, I'm trying to remember now, but at one end, it was things like, uh, that were more, more and at the other end, there were things that were uh, more directive. Yeah, listen, watch, read, do, teach. Yeah, exactly. And um, well, he had, he had elements like media elements, like video, and I think mm. if I remember. But anyway, he created this cone, and people liked it, and it, it, it had some use. But he did not base it on any research or anything, just his observations. And he was very upfront about that. Now, later, uh, people, somebody, somewhere, decided to put numbers on each of the levels of his thing. So it was like it, it turned into people remember 10% of what they uh, read, 20% of what they hear, 30% of what they see, et cetera, up to doing, right? And that became the learning pyramid that we hear about today. And it, those numbers actually were, um, they came even before Dale's Cone. So somebody like in um, a group that I worked with, you know, fat, traced this back to like 1913, 19, 1922, where these numbers, 10%, 20%, 30%. And then somebody glommed them together and created the cone we see oftentimes called the learning pyramid. And I think there are differences between different <laughs> learning practices you know we know that um, taking rote notes isn't as good as mind mapping because the effort involved in making these structural relationships causes more processing so they're more more effective and less effective processes but they don't have these numbers they're not reliable and repeatable across topics and you know to will's point all that stuff was just made up <laughs> pulled whole cloth out of somebody's um, somewhere, and, uh, it's, uh, should not be used, should not be seen. One of the problems is you see the stuff repeated and thrown up in presentations to help make it more lively or something. And it just is damaging. I think. Speaking of damaging, what about NLP? I keep seeing this all over Europe still. Oh, really? Yeah, well, there, I, I just ran into three trainers who just completed certification programs, and they're redesigning all of their curricula inside their companies around NLP. That's exactly what I did. Well, uh, for no. those of you who can't see, Clark just put his, his hands to his face like home alone. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. We have a very sophisticated audience. Some people, when we say NLP, are thinking... Um, natural language processing, but that's not Good what point. we're talking about. No, we are talking about yeah. neuro-linguistic programming. Right. I was going to make that caveat as well. Well, thank you. Um, and it, it was started by two guys who supposedly observed three top-notch counselors and codified their processes. But ultimately, it, you know, if, when you dig into the research, they just made stuff up. And they created this whole... Thing about you know oh if you touch a certain part of your body it helps you remember X and if you and it got to the stage where it was practically psychic oh if I'm a trained NLP I can converse with you and just watch your body actions and figure out who you are and what you care about and it's just you know like magic and 
there's no evidential basis for it. There was a, a guy who summarized all their research and showed that it showed that there wasn't any scientific basis for it. Um, he just looked at their research, a, a, a Polish researcher. And it, to actually think that you should design differently on the basis of it is a colossal waste of, of time and money. It, again, it's one of these things, well, I do it and it make, feels right to me, so I'm going for it and don't confuse me with the evidence that you were talking about earlier. Um, it's just not um, a good approach. So I... Uh, well, can I ask you something? Sure. So uh, the genesis of this was that, or one, one of the claims here is that if you watch people and you see what part of the what part of their body they're touching that you'll understand what they like i mean you know like i'm an older guy now and maybe that's true with millennials but <laughs> <laughs> yeah or maybe you're just touching what happens to itch today you happen to brush against that tree that causes a small allergic reaction um i don't think there's it's a sound, reliable basis that's been validated through empirical testing. Um, it's anecdotal at best, and uh, well, you know, there's a there's a there's something similar. It's called um, it's also NLP, isn't it? Like neuro leadership or something like that. That's a, that's a different thing. What do you have any? Well, I feel strongly about people attaching neuro to all sorts of stuff that really isn't, and I, you know. Yes, our brains are based on neurons, and uh, our, but our thinking is not individual neurons. We don't have a neuron for dog and a neuron for leader and a neuron for this. It's patterns of activation across the neurons. And we can't, and I don't want anybody to go in and try and activate whole patterns through triggering my neurons. Instead, what activates patterns are symbols, language and images and things. That's the cognitive level, that's not the neural level. So they talk, attach the neuro label to sound cool and talk about you know magnet fMRI data and stuff. But at the end of the day, what's really it is is cognitive, and neuro is just marketing hype. Um, in at, I would suggest ninety nine percent of the cases, uh, well, there may there is some neuroscience research that they're conducting that's interesting. But you know dopamine. Oh wow, we should be you know we can trigger dopamine. That just means they're engaged, mate. <laughs> so, so are you saying that, you know, because I've been out on the trade show floors of a lot of conferences, and there's a lot of vendors that have these beautiful products, and they're, they, they, you're, they're using neuroscience and brain science. Should I be skeptical? <laughs> hey, well, hey, Clark. You asking these Clark. questions, Will. Yes, Clark, I was, get... was going to say, this is Will's leading question workshop. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm, we're going to come out of this. When this comes out, I'm going to have a target on me at every conference from now on. Better you I, than I'm us. Start playing, Better you I'm going to start us. playing devil's advocate to make up my leading question. But, but absolutely. Um, if you hear neuro, immediately be suspicious. Brain-based is, yes, everything we do is brain-based because, you know, but... Is that like calling something organic? When, you know, what we're talking about food yeah, yeah. <laughs> well hey, or, hey or, organic is real uh, wheel works in agriculture let me yes. tell you well you know i'm now into wheel-based automobiles um <laughs> <laughs> it's a new advance 
<laughs> Which brings us now to some of the misconceptions. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's start with an easy one. Let's start with no knowledge versus focusing just on skills. I can tell you that this is one I succumbed to early on in my career. Before I met Tiagi, I was totally convinced that if I just focused on getting people to do a task and taught them the rote procedures with no knowledge surrounding that, that I was doing a good job. Then Tiagi hit me in the back of the head and called me an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually both sides. So I was somewhat seduced to the skill focus, but I believed you had to resource it with models. And I've, you know, uh, I was fortunate my PhD research was based on analogical reasoning, which is one of these uh, models where you create abstract frameworks and transfer it. So I was aware of, and mental models had been something I was interested in as well. So I was somewhat inoculated, but still very focused on skills, not knowledge. And yet um, some people also say, all you need is knowledge. And if you have the knowledge, you can do it. That's not so much they say that concretely, but their actions speak louder than words. So, um, you know, if you're giving a bunch of bullet points of information and testing knowledge tests, you're essentially saying knowledge is all you need. And we know that's not true either. Um, I get in uh, one of our colleagues is interested, you know, has an interest in a company that can process text and can then not only answer questions about it, can generate questions from it. And I think that's really neat, but it's insufficient. And we are not yet to the point where AI can generate meaningful, deep practice, contextualize situations where you have to apply knowledge. And you need both. You do need knowledge because what you, you know, the whole reason to do practice, as you learned, Matt, and as Tyler probably said, is you need to abstract some principles. If you learn rote procedures, but almost never do you do anything rote. If you can, it should be automated. Really, you're adapting it to different contexts and different situations. And to do that, you need to have some frameworks to guide your performance, some models. You ultimately internalize them. But as a learner, initially, you need those frameworks to guide your performance. So um, to, to call from all this, when we talked about the previous topics, we were talking about myths. And mm-hmm. myths were uh, essentially things that were either unproven, disproven, debunked, mm-hmm. or just made up drivel. Right. The, this, uh, the no knowledge versus focusing on skills, is a misconception. And a misconception right. is something that may have some merits I, uh, in theory, but we may be applying incorrectly or not thoroughly enough or in, in, in piecemeal. Right. Am I capturing that correctly? Yes, thank you for that. So I, the myths were, are things that are people are touting that are proven wrong. Superstitions are behaviors we observe in practice nobody really touts, but yet we keep seeing people doing them, so we should call them out. Um, and I think there are more than the, the ones I documented. And then finally, the misconceptions, as you point out, are things that parts of it are right, or another piece of evidence I used to, in these was some people love it and some people hate it. Okay, <laughs> clearly, how can we reconcile these two and fo- unpack something out of it that says not just it's right or it's wrong, or when is it right? When is it helpful? What parts of it should you pay attention to? What parts should you ignore? So both of you have written somewhat extensively on 702010. 
What are your thoughts on that one? (laughs) Well, I like it and I think it's problematic. So uh, one of the barriers in helping organizations understand uh, the broader picture of learning is the notion that the course is effect is sufficient. If it looks like school, it's good. And 702010 has been a useful way to help executives. This is from, you know, Charles Jennings is a colleague and a friend. He's a really nice guy. And he's been a proponent of it. And because it's been effective for him to go in and talk to executives and help them recognize from their own experience, because the numbers originally came from a simplification of some data they collected from executives said, how did you learn what to do? Well, 10% from courses, 20% from working with other people, and 70% from just struggling and trying things and reflecting on it. And that is a way to help get executives out of thinking, all we have to fund are the 10% of the courses. And to, to start thinking about how do we start building and coaching and ongoing development so we don't just abandon them at the end of the learning experience and trust them to learn on their own because empirically we don't. The numbers are a problem. People rail against it because numbers are never that perfect in, in real life. Yes, it's true. They simplified them. They weren't exactly 70, 20, 10. They stripped out some stuff and then they bucketed up and just used it as a numbers framework to, to help people think. But many people view that as a barrier. Um, they say, well, well, it can't be truly scientific and I'm re- rejecting it because the numbers are too perfect and it must be bullshit. It's just a useful frame. When you have that barrier, if you don't have that barrier, you don't need 70-20-10. If you don't have any problem getting your executives to understand the importance of coaching and stretch assignments and those sorts of things. And by the way, nobody's saying you have to allocate your resources 70-20-10. There's not that much you can do for the 70, but there is some stuff. Um, well, well, okay, Clark, let me play devil's advocate. <laughs> With glee this time. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer that the numbers are bad. They were poorly constructed. They're based on people's perceptions of how they learn in the workplace, which is completely out of whack. You know, they, it wasn't done well. Um, but I also believe that we ought to send a message that training isn't the only thing that has an effect. That if we train, we're going to need supports that support the training. And people can learn without training. I, I'm a big believer in that. But why, and there's other models that do the same thing. The Five Moments of Need by Conrad Gudferson does the same thing, essentially, in a different way, right? And so here's the thing, though. Why use the 70-20-10 framework? Isn't there another way we could come up with it? Because there could be some damaging elements um, in like getting people to think, oh, we should put 70% of our resources on workflow learning. Well, I think an organization would be ill-served in doing that. So that's, that's my worry is that it does some good things, but there could be some harm um, in it as well. And then we could do something else besides that. And there may be, I don't know of one. Um, and this one has been useful, not with learning folks, but with executives to open them up to then say, not reallocate our resources, put 70% of our effort in workflow learning, but instead to think about it. Um, I'm aware of the five moments in need, but it doesn't give you any notion of, uh, I think it's harder to use to convince executives to think about going beyond the course. And that's just off the cuff. Um, I haven't thought about that one. Well, and I didn't mean to um, uh, suggest that the moments of need was a better model. It's got its problems as well. There's 
many more moments of need, but um, we, we can talk about that some other day. But, and I haven't seen any other ways um, that make a better message to uh, senior executives, but I still have this worry. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And, you know, it's gotten confounded. So now Charles with uh, Yas, uh, Eretz, and Vivian um, Heinian have created the 70-20-10 book, and it's a whole performance consulting process, which is what 70-20-10 started with. And I really think that, um, you know, I, I think it confounds the message because suddenly you're going from, oh, a framework just to help executives think better to a whole performance consulting process that's very rigorous. Yas is you know, followed a lot of people and, and tracks it and stuff, but it's just, it, it confounds the message. So I, um, I just know that a colleague I know and trust has found it very useful in those purposes and I haven't found anything better. So as I said in the book, if you have this need, it may be a useful tool for you. It's, and I, in no means trying to portray that it's an all singing, all dancing, great, you know, it's not four component instructional design, right? It's not a whole learning theory. Um, it's just a, a, a tool. Okay, that's great. I, I'm, I, buy, I buy the argument. Cool. And uh, the superstition I picked, uh, because uh, it aligns to a lot of the stuff Tiagi and I do, is interaction yielding engagement. First, why is this a superstition? And... What, what are your thoughts specifically in, from the book and, and beyond? Well, empirically, you see it. That's why it's superstition. Um, roll over this part and see the information presented or click to see more. Those are just clicks that cover more information presentation. They don't necessarily make them more engaging. They're, show me some evidence that if I click to see more, I suddenly think this is a really great experience versus you're just trying to get me to consume more content. <laughs> you, there is a, there's ways that can be useful. So you can unpack, you know, so you could have a device and you could click on various parts of it and see the underlying operations of each of those components and put it together. I'm not saying, but there's just so much click is believed to be engaging by itself that's again a superstition i don't necessarily say anybody claiming that but you see it again and again in the tools that are developed and in the uses of those tools to produce content and it's when it's used in lieu of meaningful engagement of actually having people apply knowledge in meaningful ways it's um not just a distraction or or uh, cramming it a way to try and cram in more content it actually becomes a uh, ineffective substitute for real learning. What I loved about this one being highlighted as a superstition, we see it all the time in our game-based trainings. People will take any game or any activity and assume that yields uh, cognitive engagement, that people are paying attention and not just going through the motions of the game, or that they're, they are indeed engaged with the game, but they're not engaged taking what they're learning from the game and applying it uh, in some form of reflective fashion. And so activity does not yield engagement and uh, directly. And I, I just, I think it's so important uh, uh, for us to remember that as learning designers or, or to use Will's phrase, learning architects. Well, and, and to piggyback on that, you know, uh, interactivity doesn't equal engagement and engagement doesn't necessarily equal learning. You can be engaged, but not be focused on what's 
what focus on. what <laughs> really no my whole life is over no <laughs> this well, is just, matt if your whole life is over just click and you can go on to the next screen <laughs> all right the you're you're absolutely right uh will and i know uh patty shank got involved in this at the at the learning technology they had the oxford debate style thing about um, uh, fun and i think it's really important uh, to your point um uh, matt that um and will that we separate out trivial fun from hard fun. It, engagement is not just merely feeling happy, it's challenge. Um, and actually, uh, Raf Koster in his book, A Theory of Fun, made a nice case for why games are fun to play is they require learning, but it's non-trivial learning. It requires some effort. Games that are too easy are boring. Games that are too difficult or frustrating. It's gotta be in the right level of challenge, and that's where Zixim Ahoya's diagram of flow is the same as Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. Um, you know, too low, you're not learning or you're bored. Too hard, you're frustrated, you're not learning. In that zone in between is where learning happens and engagement happens. And you need to understand that. Um, my first book about engaging learning was about how do you build intrinsic motivation. But part of the, one of the elements is the right level of challenge. So it can't be, um, trivial fun you and so that's a good distinction well to 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 suggest that it's not just any game you know what this conversation makes me think is that learning is complicated and we can't just think about it in terms of like simple solutions or recipes because a lot of us we were you know, we were uh brought up with malcolm knowles telling us about the adult learner and that we should trust what the adult learner says are is that the same thing? Are, are we, should we be a little suspicious of that? Another leading question. <laughs> um, I would say we should be suspicious of it. Um, what, what, I don't have a problem with Malcolm Knowles was suggesting his good pedagogy. At what he called andragogy was really, to me, just good pedagogy. It's true for kids as well. It's just good learning, period. Trying to separate out adult from learners. You know, kids, granted, have, you know, developmentally start with a lower working memory because they have less things to, to build their chunks out of, and they may have, you know, uh, their brains do grow to a certain time, roughly about high school, um, maybe slightly before. Um, but, and they have less knowledge to use, but our architecture learns pretty much the same way. Um, activation of concepts in conjunction and the neurons that fire together, wire together, roughly. Um, there are nuances. Yeah, and I like your point earlier, Will, that you know, it is complex. It almost is rocket science. You shouldn't think that anybody who, you know, those who can't should teach. <laughs> I don't think that's <laughs> right. Um, people's beliefs about what is effective for learning are not highly correlated with what actually is effective. And I actually learned this from a citation that Will pointed me to, where somebody coming from his smile sheet stuff, somebody documented that the correlation between somebody's assessment of the quality of a learning experience and its actual impact was almost zero. It was 0 0.09, which is zero with a rounding error, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving, uh, I, just because I'm keeping an eye on the clock here. So I, I wanted to just wrap this up uh, and, and just say thank you to Clark. Clark's going to stay with us as we move into our best and our worst segment. Um, but 
I wanted to uh, just highlight Clark's book, Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, Debunking Learning Myths and Superstitions. This is one of my all-time favorite L&D books. Uh, this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the books I actually hand out to clients uh, as a way of saying, see, I'm not nuts. And <laughs> one of my all-time favorite people in the world wrote the foreword to this book. Uh, what's his name? Oh, Josh, I forgot his name. <laughs> Our friend Will. Stanley here. somebody. Stan Lee from Marvel Comics wrote the foreword yeah. to this book. No, I'm no, no. It's uh, Will. It's Mark Will. B. Clark, the uh, snake oil salesman. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, thank you, Clark, for, for joining us. Uh, it was an honor and fun. I enjoyed the conversation with you, Chance. So, going to transition now into our best and worst concluding segment of, of the podcast and um, we've explained to you in advance what we're doing but why don't uh, we have Will go first with his best and his worst go ahead Will okay well my best is uh, I've been reading this book called Indistractable because I keep getting distracted but this guy that wrote excuse the book, me Will that's a joke <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all night, folks. <laughs> Go ahead, Will. Sorry. What were we talking about? <laughs> so anyway, I was I'm reading this book called Indistractable. It's written by a guy, and I'm not going to pronounce his name right, but it's Near Al. I don't think that's right. It could be right. Uh, but anyway, Near Al, and it's a good book, but he talked about in this book that originally he wrote this book called Hooked, and it was all about um, how you can create. Uh, really digital, mostly digital interfaces, um, get people hooked, get them you know, involved in uh, doing habits and things. And so I started reading that book. Uh, and I'm not through it yet, but I think that's my best of the week um, or best of the session, best in learning, because it really talks about something that we often don't think about in terms of e-learning. And that is, you know, you hear about MOOCs and then 4% or 9%, not many people finish them. But we've got to figure out a way not just to add this learning stuff and the remembering stuff, but also how to keep people there, how to hook them into my best. What was your worst? Well, my worst, I'm going to go a little bit outside of the learning field, particularly because this is impeachment day here in the United States. <laughs> but my worst is, uh, you know, when you think about learning, you've got to have good content, right? It's got to be uh, valid, credible, ethical, et cetera. So my worst is actually Fox News, because to me, this is like one of the biggest problems in the United States right now. They are constantly just telling lies. I've been following uh, the regular news, and then I go to Fox News, and they're not talking about what everybody else is talking about. They hide the truth. And to me, if you have a democracy, you have to have uh, an, uh, a citizenry educated with facts so that you can wrangle with the facts and decide what's the best thing to do. But my worst of the week was a colleague of mine uh, posted on LinkedIn uh, a thing about Albert Morabian and how important it is for us to remember uh, uh, body language, tone of voice, and, and the, the words spoken 
as we go about designing. And I did a Clark facepalm when I saw that. And, and it was so sad. And when I debriefed with this person, um, the person said, are you kidding? It, it, this is a psychologist, a very well-known psychologist who wrote several books, including Silent Messages. And I stopped and I said, did you read Silent Messages, number one? And number two, have you questioned or challenged any of this research? And have you looked or explored at some of the, 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 uh, conf- the countermanding information out there on this? And the person said, no, because this person took for granted that psychologist, PhD, and noted author, Albert Moravian, did this. In Moravian's cases, it's just misinterpretation. He himself said it's under these situations only. And he actually has a disclaimer on his site that says, by the way, don't just take this in general. This is specifically for these situations. That's where my research was based. Um, so you're the person who's following it. Um, my best, however, has to do with uh, a client who uh, called me up and asked me to do a resilience workshop, uh, which seems to be one of the hot buzzwords. And uh, I was not looking forward to this meeting, but you know, I never turned down work. So I'm thinking, okay, how do I do resilience? How do I do resilience? And I've been coming up with our, the top 10 tips to being more resilient. And I'm rolling my eyes as I'm coming up with all these things and everything. And because, you know, I know that if you do resilience for individuals or focus on resilience, building yourself to be more resilient in the workplace, you're ignoring all the systemic uh, problems that are probably undermining them to begin with. And so I get on the call with my client and I'm ready. I'm ready to, to pull a Clark Quinn and push back gently and friendly, but I'm ready. I have all my information ready to go. And he opens up with saying, so we want you to work with the leadership team, the executives, and we want you to, to focus on all the factors that cause stress among employees and what the business case is for that to happen. And can you provide them with skills to manage more effectively these environments? And I was like, what? And, I, and I, I'm thinking, okay, wait, the shoe is going to drop. What are the logistics constraints that I'm going to get hit with? You know, like you have 40 minutes to do all this or something like that. And he turned uh, on Zoom and he said, okay, how long do you need to make this happen? I'll give you whatever you need. That's how invested we are in fixing the system. Wow. Wow. So wait, it gets better. So I said, okay, are you sure you want to open with a training program? Or should we look at the systems first and see what can be fixed from from an organizational perspective and then do training? And he said, that's great, but could we do both? And then do follow-up training. And I said, home run, okay, let's do this. And so I was floored by, I didn't have to fight. I didn't have to sell. I didn't have to pitch. I didn't have to make a case. The client came to me knowing everything. This was a good day. That was a very good thing. That was my best. Actually, I think that's kind of my best of the year, frankly. But so, Clark, let's turn it over to you. Your best and your worst. Um. Okay, I'm going to start with my worst. I was doing some research for my latest project, and 
I've been a fan of the notion of the growth mindset that thinking, you know, intelligence is fixed is limiting and that thinking that you can develop yourself is positive. And I found out that the research hasn't continued to support that in a clear way. And I want to believe it. So, and I, it, it, that challenge of not having an answer at this point is the worst part. Um, I think it makes sense. And the best part, frankly, guys, the best, I, I hadn't known it was this week until we just started this conversation here, but the best thing this week is having this conversation with you guys. It truly is because I don't get in, you know, you live off on your own and I don't, I'm bad about reaching out to people. I always have a good time when I do, but I always hate to interrupt. And so I have the ability to have an adult conversation about learning is just a delight. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, no. Adult conversation. We've <laughs> failed, Matt. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I, okay. So can I confess something? As someone who is significantly younger than both of you. Oh. and uh, so, Sorry, Clark. <laughs> so, uh, but as someone significantly younger, I... You know, both of you are are two people I admire the uh, greatly, and and so Clark, it's it's my honor to to be here with both of you, and and anytime I get the opportunity to chat with you, Clark, I learn something, I enjoy myself, and uh, and uh, I truly am engaged. So, so thank wow. you. This is like a love fest. Yeah, <laughs> yes. conversations. Jay used to say, "Conversations are the stem cells of learning." <laughs> So, wait, I thought stem cells were outlawed. <laughs> but Clark's so. a good Clark's a good drinking buddy too. I'll tell you. Oh, good. Let's go. <laughs> so that, my friends, is our latest episode of Truth and Learning. So thank, thank you, you both. Clark. Great to thank have you. you here. We will have you back. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys.